On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, Dossier listeners, to season two. Today, I felt it was important with the launch of season two. I wanted to release all of the documents that I have acquired over the last 10 years to the public, to journalists, to fans, to anyone for that matter that cares to go through and read this evidence themselves. As a part of that, you know, I can make a statement. There's only a handful of people, not not even a handful, very few people that have read these documents, live with these documents, understand what's inside of them. And that is a fellow producer of the dossier, John Aganopoulos, aka the Greek. I've brought him on today because it's arguable, I don't know if that's the right word, that he might know these documents better than I do myself. So, Johnny, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. So my question to you, having read through everything, having, you know, parsed these things, you know, part of our process was I knew I was going to release these to the public. So you had to go through every single page, read every document, put them in in order, etc. Give me your overall summary and takeaway of how you feel about these documents that make up most of season two and what I talk about and where you've landed after reading every one of them. Uh, well, I'll start here. There, After reading these, I've probably read these documents, I'm not exaggerating, 15 to 20 times at this point. Um, there is absolutely no doubt as to what transpired on March 9th, 1997, and it's the same theory we posited in season one. Um, it's it's right there in black and white, as you like to say. And and when you look at everything from the FBI documents to the LAPD documents we have access to, to the civil trial documents we have access to, it's. It paints a picture. It's a pretty ugly picture of the Los Angeles Police Department, but it's it's pretty hard to read these documents and not come away uh, with the opinion that uh, David Mack, Rafael Perez, ETAL were involved in this murder at the behest of Suge Knight. Yeah, and and that's the thing, right? I I think for myself in doing this project, in setting out to tell this story. I personally wanted to make sure that I was basing my reporting, basing the written scripts of this podcast, basing pretty much everything on documented proof. And, you know, with Phil Carson, you know, listen, let's let's not beat around the bush. A lot of times um, ex-law enforcement, i.e., whether it's FBI, whether it's anyone, a lot of times they have an axe to grind. 
maybe they were passed over maybe they had some demons that you know they 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 couldn't shut down and in this particular case phil carson is you know i would say his bar is the highest of the high the guy is a truth teller and i also do know one thing from reading the documents and interviewing phil is there is not one thing that he's going to say publicly that he doesn't know a hundred percent is true you know he he's like a lawyer an fbi agent and a publicist all wrapped in one when it comes to what he says in public and again going back to these you know documents what i had the luxury of is sergio robletto who was a private investigator was ex-lapd was able to get these civil trial documents that arguably only perry sanders team has seen obviously the city of los angeles has seen but not not too many other people the the wallace family maybe and, and and i would say i'm not sure they've seen all those documents yeah so if if we could start you know i think the plan here as we head into season two is to periodically do these types of episodes where we talk about specific items and i know you have a list but let's start at the top what what do you want to talk about first or what would you like to talk through first as it relates to the documents? Okay, well, let's start here. Uh, it's, you know, in the early pages uh, of the FBI documents, there's a almost a synopsis or kind of an update after a couple years of this investigation. And there are bullet points that are listed out, um, you know, from page one through, I, I would say about page nine or 10, but some things really caught my eye. And what I'd like to talk about, you know, there are those out there. And again, I'm going to try to make it through this whole episode without uttering their names, but the naysayers, we'll call them, um, like to paint Russell Poole as this, this lone nut and the Russell Poole theory of David Mack and Rafael Perez and et cetera, everybody's involvement in this murder is just this angry lone cop. And there are some items that I'd like to point out because these actually took place prior to Russ Poole even being assigned the case. So let's start on page seven. And this is something I've brought up to you many times because the fact that this is not uh, a, a well-known fact is kind of stunning to me. So I'll read from the text. Shortly after the murder of Biggie, an anonymous person, an anonymous, excuse me, person placed a telephone call to Biggie's mother, Valletta Wallace, in New York and stated that a person identified as D. Mack was involved in her son's killing. Miss Wallace spoke with the LAPD, gave them this information, and was subsequently told by the LAPD that there are over 500 D. Macs in the phone directory. No further follow-up was done by LAPD. Miss Wallace did not learn that there was an LAPD officer named D. Mack until reading the June 7, 2001 article in Rolling Stone magazine. So to, number one, that in itself is kind of jaw dropping. I have been able to confirm through other documents that we have access to from the civil trial, a little more detail about this phone call. And it appears that this phone call was placed to Miss Wallace five days after the murder of Biggie. And the call was traced back to the El Rey Theater. And my hunch is 
that whoever places called the biggie didn't want to be identified so they probably went to a payphone bank at the El, El Rey Theater and made the call. Just kind of coincidence that this happened where Kelly Jamerson was murdered at the hands of death row affiliates. But again, five days after the murder, you have somebody calling Miss Wallace and stating that DMAC was responsible for her son's murder. So far, Los Angeles police detectives have made two trips to New York in search of the killer. We're conducting interviews now. We're seeking out more of the witnesses that we can find. But... Uh... Sometimes that's not an easy task. We're making progress. It's moving along. Um, but I'd like to give a lot of thanks to Mrs. Wallace. She's been very helpful. A little further in these documents, uh, you have on page 12, it states the day after the Biggie shooting, LAPD interviewed a CI who implicates Mac. So within 24 hours of the murder, Mac is being implicated by a confidential informant. Again, that's a month before Russell Poole takes this case and almost eight months before David Mack robs a bank and becomes a person of interest in this case. So you're seeing in the immediate aftermath of this murder, David Mack is being implicated within days. I mean, that, again, is long before Russell Poole ever touches this case. Uh, you also have, I think people, it's kind of gotten lost how Russell Poole ended up on this case. He was contacted by Wilshire Division detectives because they had received information that Kevin Gaines may have been an accessory to this murder. That's how Russell Poole even ends up on the Biggie case. So you have evidence of Kevin Gaines and David Mack's involvement before Russell Poole ever even had this case. And I think that's a very important point to make. I think when I went into season one of the dossier, I felt Randall Sullivan had done such an excellent job that what am I going to add? Well, then comes along Phil Carson. And what's important to remember here is Phil Carson signs up Russ Poole as a confidential source, one. And two, if you talk to Phil Carson, he will say himself that Russ Poole was pretty spot on with everything he was doing to then basically have the Los Angeles Police Department ruin his life in many respects. He's painted as a drunk. They flagged him for taking, you know, a take-home car home or something. I mean, silly, silly stuff. So in essence, a very highly decorated LAPD soldier for many, many years, once he gets wrapped up in this, is torn down. And that's equally important to remember in the story of Biggie's death and, and what happened in the aftermath. So, you know, between Russ Poole and Phil Carson, you're talking about high level investigators. So I'm glad you brought up that point in the early stages of the document. The the call to Miss Wallace, I know, is something that you have always pointed out. I think it's a very vital piece of information. I think where it ends for me is that piece of information at that time, I would make an argument. It doesn't really matter because I would make the argument that the LAPD already knows that David Mack and Rafael Perez are involved in the murder of Biggie. And so the call to Miss Wallace, albeit a 
uh, sexy sort of scene in a movie, to me, it's like, yeah, of course. Like, that's just another piece of information that the LAPD already had. It's not as if they didn't know that. So it's another piece of evidence that's documented. So that's good. So what's next? What do you, what do you got next in your notes there? So, you know, again, and you know this as a kind of a seasoned investigative journalist, the devil is really in the details with a lot of these documents. And your first reading of them, uh, it, it will take a few different, you know, readings of these documents and more and more things pop out. So on page nine, we have the following statement. CIs, plural, have numerous pictures with Perez, Mac, and other LAPD officers with Suge Knight at death row functions. So somewhere in a classified drawer at the FBI, uh, according to the FBI investigation and the FBI documents that we're reading, uh, confidential informants have turned over photos, numerous photos with Perez, Mac, and you know, the cast of characters we always talk about with Suge at death row functions. Now, what makes this interesting is this document was actually written in late 2002. Uh, I think everybody's already making that leap to Mario Hammonds based off what we heard from his deposition uh, during season one of the dossier. I supplied photos of me, Tupac, Shug, uh, Amir Muhammad, David Mack, Snoop Dogg, Daz Dillinger, Corrupt, Oh, and numerous of other people that was at parties in L.A. and Vegas that we I had took and I gave them to an FBI agent. What's interesting is Mario Hammonds, the best I can tell in going through these documents, was actually not part of the FBI's case file. Included in this case file are emails from Perry Sanders and the Wallace legal team uh, notifying the FBI of the identity of Mario Hammonds and saying they have a witness they believe the FBI needs to take a look at. Now, by the time they're sending these emails to the FBI. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison. A mesmerizing coming of age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman 2 will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. 
All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Uh, as we know, uh, Phil and the FBI had presented the prosecutive report to the U.S. attorney and everything that occurred afterwards. But that means that we have other CIs who have turned over photos of these suspects with Suge at death row functions. So we know that pictures exist from multiple sources that are somewhere at the FBI. And um, I have a couple leads on who might actually have provided these photos to the FBI that I'm trying to chase down, but I don't wanna say that person's name on the air and scare them away before I've had a chance to try to get these. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's obvious when the FBI goes in to do an investigation that you're gonna have confidential sources, confidential informants, but I want to make another point here in, in listening to what you've just pointed out. There's a third investigator that worked on this case almost as equally, if not more, than Phil and Russell Poole, and that's Sergio Robledo. Sergio Robledo, an, an LAPD god who worked South Bureau homicide, arguably from from what people have told me um you know was looked at inside of the LAPD as one of the top homicide investigators to ever work inside of the Los Angeles Police Department so if you're keeping score at home Russ Poole Sergio Robledo Phil Carson all come to the same conclusions and on the opposite side of the fence who do you have our friend Greg Kading. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we know where where that is. Um, I don't want to even go any further. I just want to make a point, keeping score at home. Sergio Robledo, Russ Poole, Phil Carson, three, three top level investigators all came to the same conclusions. And this gets to what you just talked about. The idea of confidential sources, confidential information, and photographic evidence. What's next here as we go through this these documents? 
So, and I, before we move off that, I'd like to add a couple things and it will lead into my next point, but we also need to add Richard Valdemore to that list of, you know, highly respected, highly decorated law enforcement agents who came to the same conclusion. And, and I do at some point during the discussion of these documents, want to get to Richard Valdemar's FBI 302, but just to kind of follow up on that statement, I have a couple different items from the uh, FBI documents. And on page 17 is kind of a to-do list as far as uh, next investigative procedures. And here's what it states. Interview Waymond Anderson, who is incarcerated at Corcoran State Prison and is, was a cousin to Orlando Anderson. Didn't know that. Who LAPD believe committed the Tupac murder. Orange County District Attorney's Office contacted the FBI regarding this source and asked specifically that LAPD not be told regarding who he is or his location. So you have the Orange County District Attorney's Office trying to hide the identity and the location of a witness. To go a little further, uh, another statement that's uh, on the same page, uh, writer i.e. Phil Carson, met with L.A. Sheriff's Department, San Bernardino Police Department, and Orange County District Attorney's Office, who have extensive knowledge regarding the murder and the investigations they have going on that parallel caption case and involve death row, Suge Knight, and rightway securities. All agencies that Ryder has spoken to and the investigators that have worked in one fashion or another trying to solve this murder agree that Biggie Smalls was murdered in a very well-organized group and that a sole individual could not have pulled this murder off by himself. So now you basically have the FBI along with all the other pertinent law enforcement organizations in and around this area, except for LAPD, kind of coming to the same conclusion, except the LAPD, who, by the way, might have a few of their officers involved in this murder. It, I think it says a lot that every law enforcement agency outside of the LAPD all seems to agree on this. Yeah. And again, that's, you know, Phil Carson just doing his job, having the ability as the FBI to go in and talk to all of these people, talk to detectives, talk to district attorneys, talk to CIs, talk to confidential sources. You're the FBI, you have every tool at your disposal. And again, to have these files unredacted, to be able to read all of this stuff, you know, this is not available to the public. It will become available with the release of uh, season two. So what I want to do, Johnny, I think this is a good, a good point about of covering, you know, these three big points that we've covered. I think this will be a, a reoccurring, for lack of a better word, episodes throughout Dossier through season two, where we will dissect these documents. What also I would like to do, and, and hopefully when these documents are released, we can start to take questions from maybe other people who are looking at the documents and, and want to understand these. So I think this is a, a, a good place for now as we head into uh, Dossier Season 2 to cut it. Now, if you want to save it for another episode, specifically touch on in Episode 1, David Max kind of his deposition with the attorneys. And I've combed through both David Mack and Amir's depositions, and there are a couple of very interesting things in Amir's deposition that 
kind of tie in to what you discuss with regards to David Mack in episode one with his legal team. And so, again, this is kind of stuff, as you like to say, inside baseball stuff, because unless you're really steeped in the case, you're not going to understand what you're looking at or reading. Uh, I've got two portions of Amir Muhammad's depositions, and the first portion that I want to touch on, uh, you'll understand if you listen to episode one. So question from the Wallace attorneys. You indicated that you visited David Mack in jail. How did you come to visit him in jail after the bank robbery? Answer from Amir. In speaking with his wife, in visiting her and the kids to see how they were, she had a concern about how she was going to pay for his defense. And refinancing her home was one of the many things that were discussed and talked about maybe doing it. And I went to see him to talk to him about that. Question, do you know whether the home was ever refinanced? Answer, I don't. There were some credit issues that I know presented a, a bit of a problem, and it wasn't something that I could ever get done for them. Question, what kind of credit issues? Answer, I don't recall specifically. Did you ever discuss, did he ever discuss with you how his lawyers were paid for? Answer, no. Question, did you have any additional conversations with Mrs. Mack as to paying for the legal defense? Answer, I did. She had indicated that she was attempting to have some type of fund set up to have people contribute to it. Nothing outside of that, though. Question, did you contribute monetarily to his legal defense? Answer, I may have given him $500, $300, something like that. Can you Question, can you relate to me in as much detail as you can recall your conversation with Mr. Mack when you went to meet him? Answer, no, more than I just indicated that we talked about the possibility of refinancing the house. Now, what makes this important? Well, if they have no money to get a lawyer, if they are taking donations in the amount of $300 to $500 from people, if they're looking to refinance their home, which they're unable to do because of credit issues, how in the fuck does David Mack end up with a million-dollar attorney like Donald Ray? Hiring Donald Ray would be like hiring Johnny Cochran. You are talking about a million dollar price tag to be defended by Donald Ray. So right there, it just tells you again why David Mack was so hesitant to talk about where he got the money to be represented by a million dollar attorney who also happens to be involved with different death row legal situations from Suge Knight's trial to when uh, there was actually an arrest warrant or a bench warrant placed on David Kenner. His attorney was Donald Ray in that case. I mean, it, it's, again, where did David Mack get the money? Donald Ray is not stupid enough to take money from the bank robbery and end up catching a money laundering charge. So you can see right there, and not to mention, is that even really what they were talking about? Because according to David Mack's deposition, he says they spoke about some personal problems that Amir Muhammad was having at the time. So these guys can't even keep their story straight regarding what they spoke about when they visited in jail. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think if you look at the circle there, it's Donald Ray, it's David Kenner, it's Suge, it's all the same waters. So, you know, not surprising. Again, though, to your point in the deposition, you don't, I don't think you get to put Donald Ray on retainer with the salary of an LAPD officer, unless you were gonna use some of the money from the bank robbery, which you wouldn't be allowed to. So 
I think right there is a great point and it's a it's a nuance of to your point of reading these documents but also then understanding the sort of hidden meaning behind these things and we will get into this in season two is David Kenner he's a character that is floating everywhere in this story um it's somebody that's briefly maybe mentioned in season one I will be doing a deeper look into David Kenner via an anonymous phone call I received, which I cannot figure out who it was from. That's an, that's another story. But in that phone call, he did bring up a point that I should really be looking at David Kenner a little bit more. So yes, yes. on the heels of listening to that first episode and David Mack, this is a, a really important point to bring up. Yes. And I want to just read one more excerpt from Amir Muhammad's deposition because this will go to, uh, I'm sure everyone remembers, Reggie Wright Jr., uh, Greg Kading, uh, Chuck Phillips, all stating that Amir Muhammad, after he gave uh, his alibi to law enforcement agents or people involved in the case, he was cleared um, and he was no longer a suspect. So, again, Amir Muhammad was never spoken to by Los Angeles police officers. He actually was never interviewed by the FBI either. So the only place Amir Muhammad is on record under oath offering an alibi is in this deposition. So I'd like to read that to you and, and why this is so important. Question. What I'm trying to do, Mr. Billups, is trying to identify any person or persons who may be able to assist in identifying your whereabouts in the late evening of March 8th, early morning of March 9th, 1997. Can you give me the name of anybody that might be able to assist in identifying where you might have been? Answer from Amir. I was at home, but I'm not sure if she was there or not. It was a long time ago. Question. I understand. Who was the name of the person who may or may not have been there? Answer, Angela Mitchell. Question, do you have any current contact with Angela Mitchell? At this point, Amir's lawyer uh, intercedes and says, if he did, I'd be worshiping him. She was murdered. Now, for those who are steeped in the case, the name of Angela Mitchell should ring a bell because Amir Muhammad was arrested three times for domestic violence charges against Angela Mitchell. The first two times, charges were dropped. The third time, charges were reduced to a trespass violation. Amir Muhammad served 60 days in jail. On October 21st, 1998, Amir Muhammad was arrested after Angela Mitchell and her new boyfriend called 911, claiming that her ex-boyfriend, Amir Muhammad, was following them on the freeway and pulled up next to them, pointing a pistol at them through his open window. Police officers pulled over Amir Muhammad. They found a gun in the car that Amir, of course, claimed uh, he had just forgotten happened to be in the car. Uh, he was cited and released. A week later, that case never went to trial because uh, six days later, excuse me, Angela Mitchell and her boyfriend who was in the car with her when she called 911, were both shot to death in an alleged murder-suicide in which the only witness is some random LAPD officer who claims 
that this murder-suicide between Angela Mitchell and her current boyfriend took place in their front yard. They burst out into the front yard. Angela Mitchell's boyfriend murdered her, then shot himself. Case was not well investigated at all. Regardless, I'm getting off track. The only alibi Amir Muhammad has ever produced on record is that he was with his murdered ex-girlfriend. So, Reggie Wright, Greg Kading, Chuck Phillips, can you stop saying that Amir Muhammad had an alibi that checked out on the night of the murder? That is complete bullshit. I'm, I'm aware that the civil lawsuit was dropped. He was immediately dropped from the case when uh, it was proven that he had an alibi for where he was at. And the Wallace family dropped him from the uh, civil lawsuit the next day. I'm aware of that. Okay. Okay, so if you're going to say that he there was a proven alibi, okay, tell me what that alibi was and tell me where you heard it because it doesn't exist. You just said that after he was deposed, he was able to prove he had an alibi of where he was when the shooting occurred and that that's why they dropped him. I'm asking you, how do you know that? Where, where's that coming LA from? Times. LA Times. He was dropped from the – he was dropped – but what you're saying about him coming up with an, a proven alibi on where he was, you're wrong. Okay. You're incorrect. Okay. Right. It's a great point to end on. And again, another individual that, you know, is very hard to dig up information on. And it's, a, it's another part of season two that we'll go into in a little bit more detail. So, Johnny, thank you for going through the documents. We'll check back in as we get deeper into season two of the dossier. Sounds great. Thanks for having me.